0: What's going on, guys? My name is Chris DeSaro, and you're listening to the Cardinal Med Podcast, where our goal is to empower and inform future doctors. Check, check. All right, welcome back to the Cardinal Med Podcast. This is episode number five, titled Student Finances, Setting Yourself Up for Financial Freedom. We're going to change gears a little bit and talk about something that I really love, and that's money. I love money, and I'm sure most of you do too, but not too many people really know how to use it properly. I read an article sometime like last week, and it said that nearly half, I think the number was like 48% or so, nearly half of all American households have some form of outstanding credit card debt. And that's crazy, but like, to be fair, this is probably due to the fact that in the education system, uh, many students don't really learn about personal finance at much after high school. Like, in my own personal experience, I learned about it once in the eighth grade, I think, like in a formal class, a second time sometime early in high school, and haven't been taught it in school ever since. And, uh, you know, when you're that young, you don't really care. Like, it's, it's not very pertinent to your life, or at least not to most of our lives. Growing up, our parents generally pay for things, and obviously that changes with age. So, It just becomes more and more relevant to our everyday life, but less and less uh, present in our education. And I'm going to change that today. Much of this podcast is based on helping students succeed academically. But today we're going to worry about succeeding financially, which honestly, that might be more important. You know, whether or not you get into like a medical school or a vet school or a dental school or whatever... You're going to end up working somewhere, whether it be like in the rock quarry or the salt mines or in the OR, you'll be making some sort of income doing that job because you need a job to support yourself and live, you know, and uh, maybe you have a job already and that's great, but we're going to talk today about how to optimize your money to best serve you. And just to clarify, like a little bit of a heads up, I am by no means a financial advisor, literally in any sense of the word. This episode, much like the rest, is for information purposes only. And that being said, what I'm going to share in this episode, it's not its not really secrets, you know? It's they're common sense practices, more or less, that help you get the most out of your dollars. But these tips don't really become common sense to people until they've made a bunch of money mistakes. And that's really being generous. Some people never learn at all, and it ends up really biting them in the end. So these practices that I'm going to share with you, they're pretty versatile. Really, anyone can implement them, but uh, there will be a strong portion dedicated to pre-meds um, as they're really the target audience here at T- Cardinal Med. But overall, um, these tips are absolutely applicable for any student. You'll be able to tell which parts are more for pre-meds because I'm going to mention like residencies and stuff, but that's really it. Um, everything else that's like not clearly do- for future healthcare people it could be really used by anyone. So although Cardinal Med is heavily focused towards um, empowering future doctors and helping them uh, navigate their uh, their future in healthcare, share this episode with literally anyone who's a student. It will probably benefit them in some way, shape, or form because I imagine that they're much like me and that uh, when they were in high school, they didn't really pay attention to their personal finance class and it's better to late now while you're still young than to really... Uh, make these mistakes when you're older, and have it really impact your financial life. And one final note, I guess, before we start, the sources that I used to make this podcast came a lot from other podcasts. They came from ones like the White Coat Investor, they came from Financial Residency, Choose Fi, um, the blog Physician on Fire, and you can't forget studentaid.gov, probably the most reliable source there is. So huge thanks to them for helping me Builds sufficient information and knowledge to really hold this podcast and honestly if there's one thing you take away from this episode I I can't recommend enough that you check out their um, these people's podcasts or blogs or websites Uh, They're absolutely fantastic again. That's the white coat investor. Dr. Jim Dolly uh, Financial residency choose fi and physician on fire They're the cream of the crop of the financial world in my opinion and with all that said, uh, let's let's finally get into some money tips. So let's start with a bit of a roadmap and see like where this episode's gonna go, and uh, kind of the key points we're gonna hit. First, we're gonna talk about optimizing your money, and by that, that means we're gonna mention things like where to put your money, budgeting, what an emergency fund is, and how to properly like store it, um, cases to use it in, maybe, um, and after that, we're gonna go into how to avoid loans. And avoiding loans, especially as a young doctor, is probably going to be the most important thing you can do in your financial career. Loans will and currently do cripple so many healthcare professionals because you know the schooling is so long and you're not going to get the degree without going to these schools. So sometimes your back's against the wall. You just got to take out loans to really pay for it. And with that said, we're going to go into the type of loans uh, you should take out Um, sometimes you don't really have the option, which is obviously fine. We'll go into like private versus federal loans and everything. After that, we're going to go into residency. And this is obviously the part more geared towards the the pre-med crowd, what to do during residency, kind of the post med school graduation years and paying off your loans and all that. And finally, the punchline of this entire thing is choosing FIRE. Now what's FIRE? FIRE is an acronym. And FIRE stands for financial independence, retire early. And my favorite my favorite saying from the podcast, choose FI, obviously choose financial independence. They always end with saying, ah, oh, the FIRE is spreading. And I love that, the FIRE is spreading. Financial independence, retire early. Now, the second half of that gets a, a bad rapport. It's, it's not like the goal is to just rush out of your career with stuffed pockets. It's to reach financial independence so that you have the option to step away from your job when you feel like you can't do it or just don't want to do it anymore. It's the freedom to take control of your financial life and just put yourself in perspective and say like, okay, do I still love what I do? No? Okay, then it's time to leave because uh, the white coat investor put it best. If, you know, you're putting, in the case of a doctor, you're putting patients at harm by showing up to a job you don't want to be doing anymore. So by taking care of your finances, um, you'll eventually gain the freedom to say, you know, it's time for me to step away. And in that regard, you're just helping patients by kind of getting yourself out of the, uh, the doctor pool. Um, so yeah, financial independence is the ultimate goal of this entire thing. And if you want to learn more about what exactly financial independence, FI, or FIRE, the full acronym, is, uh, definitely check out the podcast and websites and blogs that I mentioned in the beginning of this episode all right i went on a little bit of a fire rent, but bringing it back to speed step one to this entire process is budgeting you just can't really take control of your money if you don't set up a budget a budget is almost by definition <laughs> taking control of your money knowing where it goes how you're spending it i guess like a list of your like checking savings uh credit accounts and stuff like that um, which banks you're a part of knowing where your money is going is the key to this entire system. So how do you really gain a hold of where your money is going? I recommend an app on your phone. You know, I'm pretty sure it's available on Androids. I know for a fact it's available on iTunes called Mint, M-I-N-T, obviously. It's an app that helps you keep track of all the different bank accounts you may have, you know, your credit, checking, savings, all that. It keeps track of your loans. It keeps track of where your money is sitting at the moment, but most importantly, it keeps track of where your money goes. So you swipe your debit card and the money comes out of your checking or something. It tells you that. It lists it. It says where it was spent, how much it was, and it even categorizes it. Was it entertainment? Was it was it food? Like a restaurant or something? And then uh, it, it like sorts it out based on the category that you were spending it on. You want to use this tool to kind of go over your budget or your spending habits on a weekly or monthly basis, okay? So at the end of each week, I think they give you a notification every Sunday or something. Just open up the app and say, oh, like I spent this much money at the, uh, I don't know, buying clothes this week, or I spent this much money going out to dinner this week. And just kind of keep track of that. It's all about being conscientious at this point. But the real key is at the end of the month, you want to see your total spending habits for that month, right? So at the end of the month, You ultimately want to come to a conclusion of how much money you spend in one month, right? And obviously, this is going to take one month. This is going to take maybe like four to five. So you can get like a real good average of where your money is going, how much you're spending each month on an average month-to-month basis. And you don't have to use Mint for this, by the way. I use a Google form uh, that's linked to a Google Sheet and I just kind of punch it into my phone and it uploads right to an Excel sheet essentially. And that's very convenient for me. And the process is the same. At the end of each month, you go to that Excel sheet or you go to Mint, wherever you keep your money, uh, you keep your budgeting plan rather. And then at the end of the month, you review it. Where was it going? And you just regularly track it. But again, the main point is to establish a general trend of how much money you're spending per month. And you use this data to create something known as an emergency fund. Now, an emergency fund is, uh, it's oddly a controversial topic in the financial world. Some people say you need it. Some people say you don't. Some people say you should instead invest and not kind of keep this money sitting aside in a bank account, whatever. My personal opinion is that an emergency fund can be incredibly helpful in keeping you from going back into debt. Um, It could help you just have some liquid cash on you and you know that's sometimes what you need. An emergency fund by definition, we're going to say, is 3 to 6 months of expenses. Now, remember that whole tracking how much you spend per month thing on an average basis like that general trend we were saying? That's where that comes in handy. You want to have this general trend because I don't know, maybe you're saying, "Okay, on average I spend like 3k a month obviously not, students generally don't spend 3k a month excluding tuition." But you take that number And you multiply it by three to six. It's you want three to six months of expenses available to you at all times, essentially. An emergency fund is a cushion. It's what it sounds like. It's for emergencies. It really helps out, you know, in the event that you may lose your job. If you become disabled and your disability insurance doesn't kick in for like 90 days, you have this liquid cash cushion so you can feed yourself, so you can pay your bills and everything but in a, in a less dramatic sense, it really gives you freedom in your life. Let's just say um, you want to take more risks in your career. You're not tied to a job just because you have bills to pay. You have this emergency fund, so you can go looking for other jobs. You could take up a more, I don't know, risky hobby or something if you want. Let's just say uh, you're like a surgeon or something, and you are afraid to go mountain biking or something because, I don't know, what if you fall and you just wreck your hand or something you're you're useless in the surgeon world and because you have that emergency fund you can cushion yourself between again like the disability insurance grace period and all um you just have more freedom in your life you don't have to fear the uh the unlikely from completely ruining your life okay so once you have this general trend of what you're spending per month and you're ready to establish this three to six month emergency fund you're probably asking where am i keeping this money Do I keep it in this credit union down the street? Do I keep it at these big banks that we see everywhere? Now, personally, I recommend that you choose the place with the highest APY, annual percentage uh, yield. Now, a lot of the big banks, they don't offer a really great APY. Chase, Wells Fargo, TD, all fantastic banks and everything, but their APY is peanuts, you know, and I don't really know the reason for that, but... (laughs) In the future, they may be outcompeted by online savings accounts. And that's where I recommend you put the money, online savings accounts. The most famous out there, I think, is Ally. Um, Ally has a legendary 2.2% APY. Compare that to other big banks where maybe it's like 0.01 or something. It's definitely less than 1% by a long shot, I'll tell you that much. And by choosing an online savings account that has such a high APY, your money just grows sitting in there it's literally doing nothing just sitting in there and it's growing it's you're earning money by not touching it and it's emerge it's an emergency fund you shouldn't have to touch it anyway you know so I recommend after you establish that general trend of three to six months of expenses and you want to put that um, somewhere obviously so you don't touch it choose ally and you know watch that thing grow. Some perks of allies that they have 24/7 customer service. There's no minimum fees for keeping uh, money in the account, and that APY is ridiculous. Now there are other banks that sort of offer the same perk, like Marcus by Goldman Sachs, uh, PNC Bank, all offer around that two to two and a quarter percent range. All fantastic choices. The whole point is that you're gaining money for literally doing zero. One con of these online uh, savings accounts is pretty obvious. They're online. There's very little, if any physical branches for you to deposit cold, hard cash. And a lot of people don't like that. And that's understandable. I mean, I don't know if, uh, if you're part of the older crowd or you just have a more conservative view of your money. Maybe it's not for you, but you'd be missing out on that APY, man, let me tell you. And final note, possibly the most important part of it, it's an FDIC-insured bank around since, I think, 1914. So yeah, it's got that nice FDIC insurance for whenever the next Great Depression happens, I guess. The government's got you for that Uh, emergency fund of less than 250 k So a very, very reliable bank. You don't have to worry about putting your money in something pretty sketchy. Kind of going on a bit of a tangent, if you're of any age and a responsible person with your money, meaning that you don't just buy things because you, I don't know, you don't just buy things randomly. You, You know, you have a purpose for buying them. You recognize your limited funds and stuff. You don't buy things with money you don't have. If you're that person, get a credit card. A credit card is probably one of the most important things you can get when really building your credit and when starting off your financial career. And I can't believe I'm about to say this, but Jay-Z said it best when he said, You want to know what's more important than blowing away money at the strip club? Credit. In this debt-driven world, you know, with student loans and um, mortgages and uh, just personal loans, stuff like that, having good credit is essential. And you can start building good credit by getting a credit card. Now, if you're a student, uh, I recommend cards like the Discover student Chrome card, uh, the City double cash rewards card, the Fidelity Visa signature bonus rewards card. These things offer fantastic cash back. And that's what it sounds like. It's when you swipe that card and buy certain things, you get a percentage of your money back. Now, it's something small, like 2%, 1%, occasionally 5% on uh, certain categories. But that's free money no matter how small it is you know you're spending money that you would have already spent and you're getting money for it like i don't know what's more ideal someone's paying you to buy something that you would have already had bought like it's a dream you know Um, all jokes aside though this is only beneficial to you if you recognize that this card has to be paid off in full every single month you know, no minimum payments or anything, no minimum spends, whatever, full. Pay it off in full. That will boost your credit score by so much, and that's important when really starting off your financial career. Now, if you're someone who is kind of afraid of not being able to pay back the balance or whatever, you can still get one. Now, I'm not saying to, like, get one even though you recognize that you're, let's say, financially irresponsible. I mean, get the card, put something so cheap on it, like... Uh, a Spotify student discount, you know, at five bucks a month or become a patron for less than that. something so, so cheap that it's impossible that you can't pay it off. You know, like everyone has $5 a month. Come on. You put something cheap on it and you put the card somewhere else. Like that's not, uh, not in your disposal. And then you just pay it off in full every month. It's a recurring charge. So the card's going to stay active and you're really building that credit paying off in full. And yeah, it's, that's a, it's a formula for success get that credit card, preferably a student one if you're a student, obviously, paid off in full, and uh, you're really building your own keys to the kingdom. Okay, so we talked a bit about optimizing money, you know, like tracking your spending, building an emergency fund, uh, where to put that emergency fund, getting a credit card to start your own uh, credit rapport and building credit. Now let's talk about step two in that itinerary you mentioned before, and that's avoiding loans. Short and sweet, go to a cheap undergrad school. And go to a cheap med school if you know med school is your goal. Go to a cheap uh, go to a cheap grad school. That's really the point that I'm getting at. And I'm not saying to go to some cheap two bit school, you know, just because the price is good. You want to kind of balance going to a school that fits your academic needs while also not breaking the bank. You know, um, when I was presenting this topic, I was giving a talk on finances to some uh, some fellow students. Someone made a good point, and uh, this girl raised her hand. She said. Um, if I had the option of going to a great law school, girls pre-law, um, or going to a cheap but not so great law school, what do I choose? And that's tricky, but in a field like law where the curriculum and the, the prestige varies depending on the school, like you're learning almost different things and that affects your job placement, you're not in the position yet to really negotiate going to a cheaper school per se because your primary goal is is to get a fantastic education and use that to build wealth in a future job. And you're not going to be able to really do that effectively if you go to some like cheap two-bit school, like I said, and you can't get the job that pays that great. Um, law is just a field like that. So obviously choose the school that best fits your academic needs first and then price. You know, taking out loans suck, but if it's a necessary evil to really succeed in this world, sometimes you've got to do it. Medicine is a bit different, though, in that all schools are pretty much teaching the same thing. Medicine's medicine. Medicine's going to change, but the school's going to change with it. They all teach the same human medicine, essentially. So go to the cheaper one, you know. And that being said, go to the one in the lowest cost of living area. Um, Going to school in Utah versus the Bay Area, you're going to experience different costs that are not tuition So just keep that in mind. You know, you want to go to the cheaper med school overall, not just tuition, um, kind of taking in other factors as well. And there are options for people who don't want to pay for med school or whatever at all. And uh, some of those options are for certain types of people and others are, you know, they're not. (laughs) Um, For pre-meds, there's one called the Health Professions Scholarship uh, Program through the military. It's the HPSP. And essentially, the military pays for everything. However, you do have to pay back, just not with money, it's with your time. Uh, You've got to serve. And I don't know the specifics ins and outs of of this program. I'm actually going to have a friend who is in this program and is now actually going on to residency soon, and he's going to talk a bit about his experiences. But overall, if I've listened uh, to any word that he said on this program, it's that you can't just go into it for the financial reasons, you know. Not only is it just a poor life choice going into the military, so they can pay for things, and then you have to, you know, you have to give your time back. And uh, some people might, <laughs> some people might be okay with that, like them paying you for your time. I don't know. That differs from person to person. But more importantly, I think it's kind of just, it's like disrespectful, in my opinion, to join the military where people uh, join to really fulfill this patriotic zeal in them and give back to the uh, to their country and you're just going there for a free paycheck, Uh, it's disrespectful in my book personally, but you know, to each his own. Now, the key step to avoiding loans, you know, you could take these shortcuts and everything, really optimize your uh, cost of living and stuff and all that. But the, the true surefire way of avoiding loans is through brute force, being a competitive applicant. You know if you have a solid mcat you have a solid gpa you're going to get scholarships there's no way around that so i guess prioritizing anything above all obviously is your academics succeed as a student and you're going to see some money coming your way and that's going to help you avoid loans in the future so you know if you're lucky you do so well in school you don't have to do this whole negotiation task of like figuring out where you want to go to school and all that and being afraid of going to this place because it's too much or this place because of uh, some other reason, but um, you'll have your choice. You can go to a school in an area that you like because now you can afford it. You got that money because you were a competitive applicant, like you worked your tail off in school and uh, you're all set to go. An important point to make too is if you're lucky enough to get multiple acceptances to grad schools, med schools, whatever, call up that financial aid office and be like, hey, uh, school A offered me this much money. Um, I don't know if be able, I'll be able to go to your school anymore. School A is kind of attracting me in this direction. And that other school will be like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, uh, we secretly had this money that we want to uh, kind of dish out now because we realized our back's up against the wall. And maybe they'll throw some money in your way, maybe outcompete school A, and uh, you'll be more persuaded to come there. And you'll really lower that bill by doing this. Okay, so we talked about how to avoid loans. But let's just say you're like most of us and they're unavoidable. You got to take out a loan to go to school. That's just the sad reality we live in nowadays, but these loans, they fall into two categories. It's pretty simple. It's either a private loan or a federal loan. A private loan can come from anywhere that's not the government. It's pretty uh, it's pretty obvious. It can come from a bank. Uh, it can come from some outside organization, but if it's not the government, it's a private loan. A federal loan is a little more nuanced. Um, a federal loan... Comes in a few flavors. It could be an unsubsidized loan. It could be a subsidized loan. It could be a direct loan. The I guess the main takeaway of this part is choose a initially choose a federal loan first over a private loan, and that's for so so many reasons. One, federal loans are generally easier to get. Uh, They don't do as aggressive of a background check or um, a credit check, I should say. They are forgivable in bankruptcy. They're forgivable in death. There's a lot more benefits than taking out in in the private sector. So, but that could change later in your career. And we're going to talk about that. But initially, you know, going to college, going to med school, whatever, take out a federal loan if you have to, of course. Okay. So taking out the loan is the easy part. Anyone can just take out a bunch of money and kind of sulk in it. But let's talk about repaying these loans. And this is probably the second most important thing you could do in your young financial career is really aggressively paying back your loans. And we're going to talk a bit about residency here for this is going to be based on my experience with residents and uh, kind of things I've read. Obviously, I'm not a resident myself, but from what I this is kind of just a conglomerate of information from a bunch of residents' stories. So residencies, for those who don't know, generally last between three to seven years and this is post med school graduation depending which specialty you're going in that could be pediatrics which is a shorter uh, residency around seven um, excuse me shorter residency around three years or if you're doing a more rigorous uh, training based residency like a surgical specialty like maybe plastic surgery neurosurgery you'll see residencies lasting up to six to seven years Afterwards, there's something called fellowship, which is just a more further specialization in your field of choice. And that can last between one to three years. Each of these stages, like when you're a resident or when you're a fellow, uh, they get paid, at least compared to a doctor, peanuts. They get paid so, so little in comparison to their attending counterparts. They get paid around 50 to 60K, which is the American average, to be fair. But um, the average American does not have 250K in debt, uh, especially student loan debt. So there's a bit of an offset, to say the least. Now, in terms of repaying these things is a pretty simple um, rule of thumb. If you got a private loan in the beginning, you know, I recommend the federal loans, but, you know, if you got a private loan, it's not the end of the world. The way to pay them back, the easiest, quickest route, I guess you could say, is to refinance those things as often and as aggressively as you humanly can. You know, if, you're, if you took out a loan of Wells Fargo and the interest rate is like 5% or something, but some external party is um, offering uh, you to refinance them for like a loan of 3%, you know, given that the terms are uh, pretty safe and comparable. If they're offering 3%, refinance th- that thing. Like, it's a no-brainer. Get that lower interest rate. That's the way you're really going to pay them back as aggressively as possible. Now, if you had federal student loans, it becomes a bit more nuanced. So probably the most familiar payoff method for student loans is the 10-year standard repayment plan. And that's pretty self-explanatory. You pay off that thing over the course of 10 years and you call it a done deal. There are other variations like the graduated repayment and extended repayment, which just kind of elongate the process, gives you a bit of a lower monthly payment option. But we're not interested in that. We're interested in optimizing our money. So to do that, we're going to focus on these four main Um, Repayment programs and these fall under an umbrella called the income-driven repayment programs, okay? IDRs, and there are four of them. There's Pay, which is an acronym for Pay as You Earn. There's Repay, which is Revised Pay as You Earn. There's IBR, which is Income Based Repayment, and there's ICR, which is Income Contingent Repayment. So these all have their own like uh, mixed terms with them. They're a bit more uh, nuanced, but we're going to focus on one, and this is the golden pony of the Repayment game, and that's repay. And that's because through repay, your monthly payment is based on 10% of your discretionary income. Now, what's your discretionary income? Your discretionary income is whatever you're making minus 150% of the poverty line for you. So, if you're a single person um, in 2019, the poverty line, you know, if you have no kids, is going to be around, uh, I think, like $14,000. Now, 150% of that is going to be around $21,000, okay? So if you're a resident making 50K, right, that means you subtract $21,000 from that $50,000 you're making as a resident, right? So if you're making $50,000 and you subtract that $21,000 because, again, it's um, taking away 150% of the poverty line... You're left with uh, $29,000 as your discretionary income. Okay. And that's per year. So we're going to divide that by 12 to get about like two and a half ish thousand dollars per year as I'm sorry, per month as your discretionary monthly income. Now take 10% of that. Okay. That's going to be like 200 and something dollars as your monthly payment. Okay. Compare that to the standard 10-year repayment plan, where it's going to be like $2,000 if you have a standard $250,000 student loan debt, which is about the average for med students. That's ridiculously lower. Repayment, um, I'm sorry, repay the program allows you to pay substantially less, you know, given the math we just walked through. And you may be wondering, wait, Chris, didn't you say that we want to aggressively pay down these things? Like, so why are we paying less per month? This is going to elongate the whole process. And you're right. However, um, you're overlooking a, uh, a program that's maybe not so secret, but I definitely didn't know about it initially. And that's called the Public Student Loan Forgiveness Program, PSLF. And this is under some real political fire. So, thoughts and prayers that it is uh, still usable by the time uh, all of us are able to use it. <laughs> so, the Public Student Loan Forgiveness Program has three requirements, and you get a special prize if you meet all three requirements. If all your loans are direct loans, they're direct federal loans. Okay. Second, if you work for a nonprofit, you know, filing as a 501c3 company, and you make 120 on-time payments, you know, it's 10 years, then you qualify for PSLF. Now, what happens if you um, if you meet all these qualifications is the government just forgives your loans. That's it tax-free they just let it go and it's beautiful i think the whole purpose of this program was to encourage people to take more public service jobs but i can't think of a job that serves the public more than being a doctor to be honest so uh, definitely reap the rewards of this thing now going back to repay uh, and also that 120 on-time payment thing so if you're paying to repay you're paying 200 bucks a month okay for 10 years And then the government just forgives it, like forgives the difference that you didn't um, already pay. You paid substantially less. Could you imagine paying 10 years worth of $2,000 a month payments only to realize that you could have just had the government kind of forgive it in the end? This is a program that you should definitely think about pursuing, assuming it's still alive by the time we're able to use it, of course. So quick summary on repaying off loans. If it's a federal loan, great. If it's not, refinance that thing. If it's a federal loan, try getting into an income-driven repayment plan. If you can't, refinance that thing with a private company. And you can find some pretty good online companies to uh, uh, refinance these guys with through the White Coat Investor website, which I highly recommend, but that's, that's just an aside. So again, get into that IDR, and if you can't, refinance that thing. If you can get into an IDR, stick in it as long as uh, you're a resident or making pretty low income because there's no use in like upping the the price of your monthly payments when you can you can barely afford it. Then think about if you're going for PSLF. Are you going for PSLF? Great. Just make sure you fit those three qualifications, you know, with direct loans, 120 on-time payments and uh, working full-time for a 501c3. If you're not um, going for PSLF, think is your interest rate less than 6% for your federal loans, right? If they're not, uh, refinance that thing with a, with a private company and then aggressively pay that thing off. But those are just some things to think about when planning out how to repay your loan. As a resident, there are some other things you should probably do too. And this is just going a little bit on a tangent, but it won't co- it won't last too long, don't worry. First is get some disability insurance, right? You're never more valuable in the workforce than when you're young. You know, You have a whole career ahead of you. So if you become disabled, just fresh out of med school or fresh into the workforce, you're losing a lifetime's worth of income. So you want to get some disability insurance that can cover your monthly expenses. Again, going back to Mint and that budgeting technique. So you want to get enough disability insurance so you can cover those while also saving for retirement. And that's because you want to stretch out your uh, disability insurance. And then um, once you uh, kind of get off it, maybe around the time you're 65, you just use your uh, retirement savings. So get that disability insurance to fit your monthly needs while also saving for retirement. Second is figure out the nuances of your 401k or 403b. These are retirement accounts, obviously. Now you want to get what's called the 401k or 403b match. And the match is just your employer is going to say like, hey, if you put in $1,000 $1000 into your 401k, I'll also match you $1000, but no more. So if you put in $2000, I'm not going to match you $2000. I'm just going to match you one. I'm just going to match you $1000. But the whole point is you want to get that match. Not doing that is basically letting your employer keep money that you deserve. And you never want to do that. You earn that money. You want to put that money into your 401k and have them match it with you. So that's the minimum. You want to get the 401k match. Second, as a resident, you want to max out Um, what's called a Roth IRA, a Roth Individual Retirement Account. This is a tax-advantaged account, meaning that the money you put in has already been taxed. And when you withdraw it later in life, it's not going to be taxed. And this is beneficial because you're making substantially less as a young doctor than as a about-to-retire doctor. Again, if you're a resident, you're making 50 k But if you're a full-fledged attending, you're making well into the six figures, right? So you want that money taxed way, way beforehand. You want to have that money taxed back when you're making 50K because you're in a lower tax bracket and you don't want it taxed when you take it out because you'll be taxed at a higher tax bracket. So the Roth IRA is an obvious choice for um, residents and very young doctors and students. An IRA and a 401k, if it wasn't clear, are just investment accounts. You open that account and you invest in uh, different types of stocks, mutual funds, ETFs and all that within them. Uh, it's not a savings account where you just kind of put money and watch it go. It's just, you know, you need to kind of do things with it. And you could do this through multiple firms. Obviously, this might depend on what your employer prefers. But um, if you have control over it, uh, there's some pretty popular choices out there that you can kind of pursue. Um, there's Fidelity, there's Vanguard, there's T. Rowe Price, Goldman, you know, things like that. And uh, you just open these accounts through these firms and kind of work with it from there. Now, as for the question, what do you invest in, the mantra for this is what's called, and this is a mouthful, a low-cost, broadly diversified index fund. Okay, now let's pick that apart. So, an index fund is a type of mutual fund. Now, I hope you paid attention in personal finance in the ninth grade because um, you better know what a mutual fund is. A mutual fund, more or less, is just a collection of investable securities, and I hope some Financial enthusiasts don't like hunt me down for saying something so simplistic, but that's all I really got to know about it. There are different types of index funds. Um, There are stock index funds where you'd be investing in just a bunch of different stocks. Um, There's bond index funds where you're investing in a bunch of different bonds. The whole point is that you're not putting all your eggs in one basket. You're putting them in many baskets, right? In an index fund, let's just say there's a popular one called the S&P 500. It's a list of the top 500 stocks in the us i'm pretty sure right so you invest in 500 stocks you're not investing in apple or google or microsoft you're investing in a bunch of them right so that's uh that's what's meant by uh, an index fund now a broadly diversified index fund portfolio um is a bit more nuanced now you want to pick multiple index funds as to keep your portfolio that is the things you're invested in a diversified collection right so um, if you choose to invest in the S&P 500, that's an entire index fund dedicated to stocks. Now, you also want to put a little bit aside for bonds. You want to put a little bit aside for real estate. These are different assets, so you're not putting all your uh, all your money just in stocks, You know, albeit a bunch of stocks, but stocks nonetheless. You want to mix it up so we ha- you have your money in some stocks, some bonds, some real estate, some, I don't know, tips, um, other things like that. Now, what does it mean by low cost? All of these... Mutual funds—they have something called an expense ratio, and that's just kind of um, a percentage of uh, your money that the firm gets for a le- for letting you invest with them, right? So, and these are these are such low numbers. Typically, they're like 0.015 percent, and you want these costs to be low because as your portfolio grows over the years, 0.015 percent is going to be pennies. It's going to be multiple dollars and uh, way more than that, you know, as your uh, portfolio hopefully gets into the millions or something. And you use this uh, broadly diversified low-cost index fund portfolio for the long term. This is not some game that, like, you track the market and, like, watch it go up and down for, like, a few weeks or months or whatever and then pull your money out. This is a long-term game. You want to be investing for, like, 30 years or something. Well over 10. And that's because the market as a whole, it's this is pretty much economic fact, has been growing for decades. It's almost always an upward trend in the long term. In the long term, it's upward. You know, compare um, compared to other uh, points in history, as, as far if like you zoom out on uh, one of those like yield graphs, you'll see we're at like all time highs, right? And that's because economic growth is generally an upward trend. So for the long term, you're going to see something like six to eight percent returns on average on the two on like the two year game or something. These short term uh, uh, return uh, graphs or whatever, it's not going to be as generous or sometimes it'll be super generous. But the whole point is that if you invest in the long term, uh, you're more likely to see a positive outcome. This is a long term strategy It's no use in uh, in messing around with like timing the market and everything. If you want to learn more about the cons of um, timing the market, I recommend a book called *The Quest for Alpha*, which just talks about the fallacies and the whole like buying low, selling high uh, type of thing. Which is obviously the right thing to do, but in the short term, it's just it's you can't you'll never be able to time it so correctly as to outperform these index fund portfolios. There's another book out there called um, *How a Second Grader Beats Wall Street* or something like that. And it's just the idea that investing in these simplistic index funds will beat a Wall Street hedge fund manager almost always. It's such an easy way for the average uh, man or woman to get the most of their money in investing. Finally, now that you got your financial ducks in a line, um, we can pursue FIRE. Remember that acronym from the beginning? And we could do this by what the white coat investor calls living like a resident. That's kind of what the name sounds like right you're just living like a resident um now the whole point of this is that after you graduate residency you're going to be going from making like 50k a year to 250k a year it's a dramatic increase in your paycheck and what you do with this money is critical if you just kind of use that money and buy this big doctor house and this nice doctor car and like really just try showing off your new doctor lifestyle to your friends you're going to lose all your you're going to lose so much money and you're going to fall so behind on your financial path it's going to be ridiculous so to offset that you want to live like a resident after, for about 2 to 5 years after you graduate residency that means just as you were continue living on this 50 to 60k income you know maybe give yourself a little bit of raise you worked hard for it but use the rest of that money you know all six figures left of it because you're living on such a small portion of it And you want to do things like pay off your student loans aggressively. Oh, so aggressively. You want to pay them off in probably that two to five year range. Um, You know, um, and that's even if you have like 400K in debt, you're throwing six figures at that debt. So you can kill it relatively quickly. You don't have to go through these whole um, like 10 year repayment plans. And obviously this is um, assuming you're not going for public student loan, uh, public service uh, loan forgiveness. This is more or less assuming you you have very high interest federal student loans that you're not planning to put into PSLF, or it's assuming that you only have private student loans. These you want to get rid of super, super, super quickly. Get that monkey off your back, right? Second, uh, save for a house. You know, you you deserve to have a house, right? Um, you worked all that time, you studied all those hours. Use a, use a lot of that leftover income to save up for a down payment on a house, which generally is about uh, 20%. Uh, second or third, rather. Um, Keep maxing out that Roth IRA. Really hit that 401k and 401b, I'm sorry, 403b match. Really get the money that is in your contract. Get the match. And then afterwards, max that baby out. Keep saving for retirement. Catch up to your um, college roommates and everything. So really just aggressively fund that thing to catch up. And then um, after you max those out, and trust me, you will, given uh, the average physician's salary, um, you want to start saving your money in a taxable account, and a taxable account is just an investment account. It's kind of like the Roth IRA and four hundred one k's, except this one's more accessible. You can kind of get a debit card for most of them. This is just money you put. Uh, you kind of you're treating it like a bank account, essentially, and you're just watching it grow. And it's okay um, if it goes up and down because you already have again that three to six month emergency fund. It gives you this sort of flexibility to do more things with your money, and. Investing in the, in the long term with this taxable account as your uh, like sort of savings account lets that money take off in the long term. We talked about Ally that savings bank with uh, two point two percent. Investing in the long term using a taxable account as your savings account try six percent. It's outrageous. Again, long term investments and that's just a, that's a savings account that you're supposed to keep your nest egg in. Because the emergency fund is supposed to be more liquid, and you already have your uh, your budget on hand, so you kind just, of just pay off um, what you spend per month. The rest is for saving, and you let that thing rocket away. Returning one last time to the concept of FIRE, um, there's something called the FIRE number. And it's sort of like an emergency fund in that uh, it has an attainable number at least, but it's said that you reach FIRE or FI, whatever you like, When you have 30 years worth of expenses stored away in a taxable account, in whatever you want, Um, once you reach that 30X of uh, your annual spending, you've reached FIRE for all intents and purposes. Some say 25. I'd say like a good cushion for 30 is fine. Um, And again, that's all about going to... It's all about reaching that number uh, so you can say that you go to work because you want to, not because you have to, Right. Um, I think that's a goal that a lot of us have uh, growing up. And you definitely don't want to kind of sell your soul to a job that you don't even like anymore. So just investing your money wisely, watching it rocket away in the long term and everything. These are all fantastic ways to really build this huge nest egg cushion for you and ultimately have more freedom in your life because of it. You know, the saying goes that money doesn't buy happiness, um, which is obviously true. But, you know, as Kanye West says, money is not everything, but not having it is. Having a comfortable amount of money with you in some sort of investments and everything and dispersed throughout your bank accounts and everything, having a, this nice financial portfolio that is well into the uh, seven figures for an aged doctor, you know, um, in the 50, in his 50s or her 50s, that allows you to really explore your horizons. In contrast, having no money, is a financial catastrophe it's a life it's a lifestyle catastrophe it really puts you in a position of feeling deprived and not being able to do the things you want to do to put it lightly right so using these steps to attain fire and paying off your loans really getting your lifestyle in order after this long aggressive academic um, road that you kind of just cleared and are moving more into your professional career really getting all that in order um, beforehand will save you so much time and so much money and spare you so much stress in the future. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Cardinal Med podcast. If you found any of this information helpful, please be sure to rate us well on iTunes or whatever platform you found us on. If you did not, uh, we'd equally appreciate some constructive criticism as well. That way we can improve and best help you as a student succeed. Consider becoming a patron on Patreon uh, if you want some inside gifts from Cardinal Med um, and just want to see us grow in production and quality. Finally, just as a bit of a disclaimer, any information you obtain via Cardinal Med is for entertainment purposes only and should 100% be verified with your own pre-med advisor as they can provide a much more individualized approach. Um, I am not a pre-med advisor. I am a student much like yourself, just with some additional experiences. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next one.